Well, this morning we're going to be picking up in Genesis chapter 25. Um, the title of today's message is called Two Nations, and you'll see why I'm not that creative. I just pull it out of the verse. Um, <laughs> But sincerely, uh, we've been going through Genesis, God and Man. This is a study we actually were involved with back in New York as doing a home study and just felt led to continue it when we came out here. And um, I was talking to a friend the other day and just uh, sharing with them how blessed I've been to be able to go through this. I've just seen Genesis in a different light as we've gone through it um, this past time. But the study is God and Man because sometimes I think we look at the scriptures and we have this, kind of like the song said, there's this veil between us and the scriptures, that the people in the scripture somehow were different than us. I mean, obviously they had different lives and different times, but that somehow you see a guy like Abraham and you go, you know, he must have just been something special for God to talk to him and use him in the way that he did. And, and yeah, he was. He's in scripture. He's the father of faith, as the Bible says. But as we see that he's really a man and he's no different than us in that. Like the Bible says that they had like passions as us. And yet God loved him and had a plan for him. And it's no different than for you and I. And I think that as we've gone through this, I've seen a lot uh, more about the personal stories in these people's lives and really viewed them more as people than just these figures of faith, which they are still, like I said, but um, that they are people just like us. And with that, that if these people can have a relationship with God that's so powerful and special, we too can have a relationship with God that's powerful and special. Why? Because... God is powerful, and God made us, and he wants that for us. He desires that for everyone um, living and dead. But previously we saw that Sarah died, um, that in fact that when she died, Abraham does this deal with the guys of the land um, to buy a burial plot for her. You know that he left his homeland uh, at God's calling and came down to this area, Uh, but he was still wandering. He was still... Just Abraham with his tents and his servants, and he amassed wealth, and he had influence, but he didn't yet have a plot of land that was his own. He was kind of at the whim of the guys and the kings and the rulers of the area, but he ends up buying this land. And it's interesting that the first piece of uh, land of this promised land that he actually takes hold of is a, is a burial ground, um, and it's for Sarah. And we'll see that Abraham uh, was getting old. Uh, he sent Eleazar, you know, the servant's not named here, but uh, it's believed to be Eleazar, the, the servant from a previous chapter. Uh, if you're familiar with that story where he goes out to find a bride for Isaac, for his son Isaac, that Abraham's old and dying, and he wants to make sure that Isaac doesn't marry a local girl, that he marries the right girl for him, someone from uh, his hometown, and his, it finds even his family. Um, we see the story there in the previous chapter. But God provides Rebecca, and I think what's interesting, uh, we saw that she willingly goes that, yeah, her brother and her dad kind of work out this deal with the servant to go back with her. They want him to stick around for a little while, but he's like, no, 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 I I really need to go. God's provided, and I need to go back. And so they ask her, and this was sort of her chance to say, you know what, I I don't want any part of this deal. I don't want to go. It's too fast for me. I don't know this guy. Uh, But it says that she willingly goes um, with him. And she met uh, uh, Isaac and then became husband and wife. But today, as we get through uh, chapter 25, um, we'll see that Abraham dies. We'll see that the torch is passed on to the son of the promise, to Isaac. Um, and again, Lord, we just ask that your word would speak, that God, my words would be few, and that your words would be the ones that we listen to, and that God, you would speak to each of our hearts this morning as we spend time in your word. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> but as we get started, let's look at the first 11 verses together. It says that Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Ash, are you listening? There's a lot of great baby names here. 
Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Leumim. And I'm sure I'm butchering each of these. Um, and the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda, and all these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had while he was still living, and he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. And this is the sum of the, uh, the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in a cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass, after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Be'er Lahai Roy. I'm definitely not saying that one right. But we see here, after uh, Sarah died, that Abraham takes a new wife, Keturah, and her name means incense. And I think that's always interesting because we see Abraham as a man of prayer. We see links in scripture between uh, incense and prayer. Uh, but it's interesting that Sarah dies, that Abraham's old, and he takes another wife. Um, and it's actually his wife. She's not a concubine. Um, and I just think of Genesis 2.18, uh, where God says, It's not good that man should be alone. And my prayer always is that the I die, that God would bring an even better man, which isn't going to be hard to find than me for my wife. <laughs> it's probably easy. You're probably going to any corner, right? Um, but sincerely, because it's not good uh, for someone to be alone, especially with kids. And I've, you know, I don't ever want to get remarried, but if, heaven forbid, my wife dies and we've got kids, I need to get married again because those kids will be in trouble if it's just me. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'll be in trouble. <laughs> I'll need the help. Um, you know, I think of there's pastors I know, you uh, know, one of my pastors, the pastor, his wife died in the past couple of years, but God brought him a new wife and they have kids. And, you know, I go, I don't, you know, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to not be alone. <clears throat> you know, you get alone, especially in a time of grief, you see uh, Rebecca comforted Isaac. But she had sons, so, you know, Abraham's a pretty old guy. That means that she wasn't a senior citizen. We don't know how old she was, but she was at least able to have all these sons, let alone many daughters that might not be listed in the genealogy. So Abraham, you know, found himself a young wife. I found, my wife's young. She's eight years younger than me, but I don't know that they were eight years apart. <laughs> Typical guy, right? Uh, but sincerely, um, you know, they had, he had concubines. And I find that interesting, given all the other drama in Genesis with him and Hagar. Uh, you know, we know culturally it was a kingly thing to do. Uh, also, you know, you want to grow a large family, have power and influence. Uh, but also just the simpleness of like the flesh of man is just, you know, men can be given over to that, to wanting many wives. Um, but God hasn't laid out the Ten Commandments yet, so it's not like there's a written law that Abraham would be necessarily disobeying in, in God's sight, like God deals with uh, David later for uh, transgressing these things. Um, but I think it was still clear before the age of the law that one wife was still the intent. One husband and one wife is the intent. You know, God didn't give Adam two wives. He gave him one wife. And uh, uh, that's important. Uh, but sometimes people can get tripped up in the scriptures over those things. But this is just... You know, the Bible doesn't necessarily say that everything done was right, was right. It just says this is what happened, and this is the relationship of God and man through it. And again, with all the trouble with Hagar and Ishmael years ago, you think Abraham might have picked up a little bit. Even when his wife said to get someone else, he goes, all right, you know, I'll go for it. And they have 
uh, Ishmael and there's problems, um, but apparently uh, it didn't uh, get through his head. Um, and I think that's like a lot of us sort of got thick heads when it comes to these things. But again, it's still, we don't see God dealing with Abraham for these things, um, and he is a father of faith, so uh, I guess there are more important things to worry about at that time. But it says that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Uh, you know, it's important that Abraham knew at this time that Isaac was still the son of the promise, that he wanted to make sure that these other guys who were born to him did not have some competition or some inheritance to Isaac. Abraham knew that he was the son of the promise, and he was going to make sure that the son of the promise inherited all of the promise. He sent these, his kids far east to go over um, and, and go somewhere else to stay away from his son and the problem. He knew it was about family problems back when he had Lot, and their servants were all fighting. They fought over a well, and Lot ended up going over to the Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham went the other way. And I, I know that he didn't want that problem for his son, that his son was to receive all that God had for him. And despite Abraham's you know, other children through other ways, he didn't want that to interfere in his son's life. And yet, maybe he didn't right away, but we know these people later on in history uh, tend to clash with Israel. But it says that there was the sum of his years were 175, and that's pretty old. You know, no one really lives to be 175 anymore. We see, I think I was reading in the paper something about a, a Japanese man who was the oldest. I forget the number of years he was. But these people live pretty old, but not 175. And it says that he died in a good old age. So he was old and it was a good old age. You know, you can die old and it's not always that good. You know, I hope that when I die, I die, you know, I die old and it's good. And it's not uh, a horrible way to end out your life. You know, I was joking with a friend the other day at work. I was like, we're talking about retirement. I'm like, my retirement plan is probably being a greeter at Walmart, you know. But then the thought struck me, there probably won't even be greeters at Walmart anymore. I'll just be robots. So I don't know what I'm going to do for retirement. Um, but it says that it, it was the sum of his years. That it was full of years, that his life was full. It wasn't wasted. He was uh, obviously a very influential man, but he, uh, his life was full. And I hope that we can each say that, his life, that our lives were full. Uh, the commentary does the count, because I didn't do the count on it, but he's mentioned 70 times in the New Testament alone. This man, Abraham, is very important in Scripture. Um, and his legacy carries on. You know, obviously he founded the nation of Israel, that God blessed him through it and would use that to bring Jesus. But he's mentioned over and over, even more than Moses. You know, no, I'm sorry, not more than Moses. Moses was mentioned 80 times. So we see Abraham and Moses being very pivotal, pivotal, pivotal characters in the Old Testament. Um, but with that, you know, a life that's not full probably isn't going to have that much influence. And I wonder what the sum of our years is going to be. And I tend to quote this scripture a lot, but it's Psalm 90, 10 through 12. And it says, The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years. So we see that people weren't living that long in David's day. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. So he says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Even King David knew that, man, at the most, you're only going to live 70 or 80 years. You know, I'm 37, going to be 38 this year. All I get 40 is like coming quickly, and that's all I can think about is being 40, and it's over with. And um, man, if I'm halfway done, man, I don't know that my life is full yet. It's been getting very full. We have another one on the way. There's lots of things to do. Very busy, but I pray that man, by 70 or 80 days, uh, 70 or 80 years, that my life is full. And David sees the wisdom in that, that we need to number our days. 
You know, that because when we realize that our life is short, we realize, man, I should probably be about things that are more important than the things I'm concerned about. Yeah, I've got all these desires for my life, things I would love to do, but if they don't come to pass because I'm focusing on the things that the Lord has for me, then I know my days will be full. You know, if I go out and spend all my time trying to build a business that would be fun or go skydiving or be an adventurer and all these things that I would love to do, but man, I missed out on having a full life in the Lord. Um, it's not going to be much of a legacy. And even then, I don't care about my name living on. You know, I'd rather it not. There'll probably be taxes and bills related to it. But I hope that my kids and my grandkids, if the Lord tarries, would know that their grandfather uh, loved the Lord. And I would hope that they would say I had a full life in that sense, that it might encourage them to seek him. But we see here Abraham dies. And we haven't heard much about Ishmael. Um, and we see Ishmael come back into the picture here. Um, I could be wrong, but the last that's coming to my mind is when we see Ishmael and Hagar cast off into the wilderness. And it was all because um, Ishmael was a bit older than Isaac. Isaac was having a, basically a birthday party. And Ishmael comes out and mocks him. And it's not like it's a five-year-old and a four-year-old having a little playground, playground fight. Ishmael's at least 10 years older, and he's bullying Isaac. And so Sarah wants him out. But we see now as adults, um, Isaac is about 40, so Ishmael's a little bit older. And they get back together for their uh, dad's funeral. And it's uh, a lot of times you see at funerals, that's when family has been kind of split up, kind of comes back. And, you know, sometimes there's a facade of niceness. And then, you know, if you hang around too long, <laughs> that facade kind of goes away. Um, uh, you know, my family, we like to get together. Uh, but I think each of our personalities, after a while, we just end up calling it short on the holidays and things because we don't want to get into a fight or an argument. And I wish it would last longer than that. You know, my parents got divorced when I was a kid, and we all kind of went separate ways. And, you know, some of my family would get back together. There's only a little bit of tolerance that they have. But God's done a lot of healing there, and I pray that he does more. But I have to wonder, how awkward was it for them at this time? You know, did Isaac and Ishmael plan it out? Were they on better terms at this time? You know, the scripture doesn't say. This is conjecture. But I have to think, you know, these people are real people with real families. And man, what was, what was that like? And again, it's mentioned in the last chapter too, but it's interesting to me that where it says where Isaac lives is the place where Hagar and Ishmael were when God spoke to her. When they were in the wilderness and uh, she put him basically in some shade because he was dying or she thought he was dying and she cried out to God and he provided for them. Um, and that's where Isaac is living. I think it's interesting that you know, he's got to be aware of these things. Isaac is still aware of Ishmael and the plight of his mom. But they come together and they bury Abraham in the same place um, that Sarah was buried. And this, you know, this place that Abraham, near where Abraham met with God several times, these trees of memory. Oh, excuse me. Let's go on. Let's pick it up in verse 12. It says, Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom uh, Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, uh, Nebajoth, and Kedar, Abdiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadar, Tema, Jetor, Nafish, and Kedema. I don't know if he's just making these things up or I didn't look up the meanings of them. <laughs> but these were the sons of Ishmael, and uh, these were their names by their towns and their settlements. Twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. 
Uh, they dwelt from Havilah as far as Shore, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all of his brethren. We see here, uh, we're reminded of who Hagar exactly was, that she was an Egyptian servant to Sarah, that uh, she was not uh, from the same place that they were. They were from, she was from Egypt, and we know that Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt several times, and Abraham gets himself in trouble there a few times, and thankfully God shows him grace by showing these men who aren't godly act more godly than Abraham and not take his wife or hurt him as he's afraid that they would. Uh, but she and Abraham have a son, Ishmael, and it's interesting that even though he's not the son of the promise, God still promises things to Ishmael, in a sense, because through his dad, through the promise to his dad, Ishmael, too, would become a father of nations. Um, they wouldn't be the promised nations. They wouldn't be God's favored nation. But it doesn't mean that God still didn't show an interest in them. Um, and it's interesting, you know, the parallel here, that there's 12 princes and nations that come from uh, Ishmael, just like uh Jacob later would have 12 sons and end up being the 12, son, 12 tribes of Israel. That there's always this parallel, you know, I think uh, that the flesh a lot of times can imitate the promise in our lives. You know, the enemy loves, can, uh, the enemy can be one who disguises himself as an angel of light and tries to trick us and get us involved in things. But so can the flesh. And the way the flesh likes to fulfill things is to make it look good, make it look like it's the promise coming to be. Um, but always, always... When we investigate and dig further, we find out that this fleshly thing is not the promise. You know, oh, you know, we look at uh, Islam and Judaism, and we see that they both look at Abraham as their father, but they both claim completely different things about the promise to Abraham. Islam claims that the promise was to Ishmael. Israel, uh, Judaism claims that the promise is uh, to Isaac, or to Abraham and Isaac, right? And so many names, it's like, <laughs> I'm juggling around. But sincerely, we see as we investigate, the Messiah came through Israel. And we see that that's, that's the evidence, obviously, the scriptures too. But we need to be very careful in our lives that we don't let the flesh take the place of the promise. Um, because as we'll see a little bit later, it's very quickly the flesh can take over and ruin the promise or even remove our inheritance from us. But he sees that they go to a place called Shur. And if you're familiar with the, you know, the maps of the Red Sea, it's like kind of like a hand with the peace sign. It's kind of right over here to the right of the right finger of the Red Sea. And Havilah um, is the area of modern-day Kuwait, just so you get an idea of where they were and where uh, these guys went. It's interesting, again, that these are the mainly Muslim nations of today as well. You know, so they haven't gone very far. <clears throat> Let's go on, verse 19 through 26. And it says, uh, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padamaran, the sister of Laban, uh, the Syrian. Excuse me. Now, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? Uh, so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. And afterward his brother came out, and uh, his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So basically, Isaac's about 40 
when he got married. Uh, and I got married when I was 30, and I thought I was old then. You know, people were like, oh, it's 30, you're old. You got time. There's time uh, to get married. Um, but I did a little digging, and this is kind of one of those weird offshoots. So I'm not going to try and spend too much time in there. Uh, it's a bit controversial. Uh, but Rebecca was young, and there's some guys, uh, some rabbis from the old world, like I think it was around 1100, that claimed that Rebecca was three years old. And I don't see that in the scripture. You know, I'm no scholar, but I don't know that a three-year-old would be out of the well and be able to carry a jar and fill up all the water and have this conversation. And I don't know that Eliezer is going to be, oh, this three-year-old is so beautiful to behold and give her some, you know, jewelry. That would be even a little too weird for some of the weird things we see in scripture. Um, but perhaps she was around 10 or 13, um, you know, probably why she had a nurse go with her. Uh, we don't exactly have an exact uh, timeline here. They try and make guesses based on the ages, other people, and uh, the events that happen. And again, you know, the Bible is not always in chronological order. You know, it tells things more of a story. Uh, the way they told things wasn't exactly the way we did. We do. But again, this would be quite controversial. Even if she, even if she was 13 and Isaac is 40, that's obviously controversial, um, uh, especially in our culture these days. You know, there's really... Very little wholesome motive, I would think, for a 40-year-old to want to marry a 13-year-old. Um, again, if some 40-year-old wanted to marry my pre-teen daughter, uh, and he didn't listen to me when I said no, he, I would probably go to jail for murder. So, you know, no 40-year-old is going to close to my daughter. Um, but sincerely, that's, that's sick today. Uh, and there's even some cultures and religions that still want to accept child brides. You know, I keep bringing up Islam. This one wasn't in my notes, but... There's a lot of child brides that go along with that. And I'm sure that there's others that do it as well. Uh, modern day trafficking um, of children. Um, children are kidnapped and taken for nefarious purposes. You know, uh, we're, we don't give much, but we're a part of Agape International Ministries and they're involved, is it Indonesia? I just forget. Uh, yeah, and basically they go in and it's a Christian ministry and they rescue girls and even young boys who are slaves for you know sexual purposes and they rescue them and give them school and a lot of times even these kids parents have handed them over you know that you think of these things these days that this is a sick day and age we live in you know not that these things didn't exist back then in some way or other but man just the wickedness is so prevalent in our culture these days you know even more so the lord would come back soon and bring an end to it but I think it might give us a little bit different light to the last chapter and knowing that perhaps she was, you know, she wasn't 24 or 18 or 40 or she could have been a little bit younger. But again, she went willingly. And obviously, despite the age difference, it was God's design for these people. Abraham wanted a wife from his family for his son, not from one of the locals. Uh, Eleazar goes back and he prays. And as soon as he's done praying, God brings Rebecca out to do exactly what this prayer had laid out to do, which wasn't impossible, but was a big ask. And if you're still curious about it, we can ask him in heaven, but I don't think we're going to care when we get there. Um, but again, young marriages, you know, in a grand society or in a matic culture, I don't think is that big a deal. You know, we live in an age where youth is extending into the 30s. People are able to stay on their parents' health care until, was it 28 or something? 27. It's like, get a job. <laughs> you know, I get it if you're struggling or things are back and forth. But I think the, the direction of the culture, at least for men a lot of times, is to stay a boy and, and not take responsibility for things. Um, 
But then you're 13, you're 14, you're 15, you're not in high school, you know, you're not working at McDonald's part-time, you're out in the field and you're working hard. And so for two 14-year-olds in that culture to get married, probably not the biggest stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, and I, I think young marriage is good. I wouldn't let my kids get married at 14, but you know, if you're 18, 22, and you feel led of the Lord to get married, and then do it. You know, we had some friends who got married young, and I remember they got flack a lot for it, but they love the Lord. They're responsible. It's just going to cause a lot of problems if they don't. But Isaac pleaded with the Lord for Rebecca. It's been 20 years of them together. They haven't had any children yet. Obviously, in this culture, if a woman didn't have a child, it was, you know, a, a real detriment to her. Um, and obviously, a woman's married, she wants to have children. You know, it's the desire, I think, in some sense, for most people, it's the desire of your heart. And to not be able to have a child has got to be a hard thing. To want a child and not be able to have one, um, I, can't, I can't imagine. And most of the time in Scripture, we see women crying out to God. Like Samuel's mom, Hannah, she's weeping at the altar. The priest thinks she's kind of drunk. And, you know, calm down, lady, get over it. You know, you're making a scene. But she was really heartbroken over it. But here we see Isaac is praying for her. That Isaac is getting on his knees before the Lord and saying, Lord, man, my wife, Rebecca, she's barren. God, please. And we don't know how long he was praying. Were they praying for 20 years? Was it? I don't think it was just a last minute thing over something this big. We see her husband praying for her. And that's so important as husbands that we pray for our wives. Not that it's your job, it's your duty. In some sense, it's your duty. I'm sure we'll be called into account for the spiritual state of our wives when we come before the Lord one day. But really, it's, it's our privilege, our blessing. And we have a special position in their lives that we might be able to pray for them with a heart and with a mind that no one else might have for them. Thankfully, Ashley's dad is a believer. He's, you know, he's a deacon or is he an elder? Is a, a delder. <laughs> but, you know, he serves a church. He knows the Lord. He's faithful to the Lord. He's a very caring man. God's done a great work in his life in the past decade. And I know that I'm sure that he would pray for his daughter in a way that a loving dad would. But it's not the same as my prayers for my wife. Um, God, why didn't she do the laundry today? No, <laughs> definitely not that. But sincerely, man, there's things I would pray for my wife that no other man would have insight to and how important it is as that position that I'm doing that. First Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. That Peter is saying, as husbands, if we're not taking up the duty and the responsibility and the calling to pray for our wives, God's probably not going to listen to our other prayers. There's other scriptures that talks about uh, when the Israelites in Deuteronomy, uh, God calls the heavens like brass, that it's, it's closed off with a hard metal. Your prayers are not going to cut through here. You're not going to get cell phone reception through here to God if you're not taking care of your wife. And there's been times, you know, um, when I've been upset for some reason other than my wife, not to her fault, to my detriment, and I'll go to pray about something or even just put down to the Lord and God's just like, go apologize to your wife. Like basically like, I, I don't want to see you until you go take care of that lady I gave you. Um, oh, all right. <laughs> I'm such a fool. I'm such a fool. But man, it's important to pray for our wives. And, you know, you guys are married. We're married. I think that that's awesome. But, you know, for those that aren't married, that God would bring you the right wife and that you would pray for her before you married. I used to pray for my future wife. I remember 
just getting saved and praying for my wife, whoever she would be. I didn't have, there was no one like in my sight that I was thinking about. But I knew that one day God would bring me wife and I used to pray for her. So he answered my prayer. Sorry. <laughs> if I didn't pray, maybe you would have been off the hook. But man, um, because I knew that God knew her, even if I didn't. But it said it took 20 years for their, from their marriage until the birth of Jacob and Esau. So that's a long time. So she's already getting, you know, if she was young, she's getting to the, the older part of, you know, in her 30s to have a child. And, you know, the older you get, the harder it is. My mom had me when she was 39. And I can't imagine having a kid at 39, but that's kind of the upper, you know, there's people that have kids in there. Older than that, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you physically do that. Uh, but basically, she was having these pregnancy issues. There was all this battle, this war going on in her belly. And, you know, uh, a coworker of mine was telling me how sick she got during her pregnancy because I told her about my wife being pregnant. And, you know, Ash, I think this time you were sicker than usual, but it still wasn't as bad as this lady was having it. You know, that you can have all these uh, crazy issues in there. So she's, man, what's going on in my stomach? Like, what on earth is going there? She didn't have a doctor to go to where they could use an ultrasound and see, oh, well, there's, there's two boys in there and they're kind of rough and tough and they're fighting each other. Um, but she had no idea and she was uh, bothered by that. I think about Ash, you know, you're sharing with me about each of the kids you carry differently and they acted differently, different kicks, different positions, uh, different foods you could eat. But it says that she sought the Lord here. She, uh, she prayed and I wonder if we'd hear more from the Lord about things, if we just prayed before we went to the doctor. I'm not saying, you know, some people say, don't go to the doctor at all. I don't go to the doctor because I'm broke, but <laughs> sincerely, if you go to the doctor, that's okay, but pray before you go. In fact, pray in a way. I'm not saying don't go at all, but just pray first. I wonder how much insight the Lord might give us to the things going on in our lives if we just prayed. And maybe we've realized that, oh, I don't need to go to the doctor, or, oh, maybe I do need to go to the doctor. I need to get this looked at. Because I think we're missing this huge thing, deep insight, because we're too dependent on other things first. We're too dependent on our resources, on WebMD, on uh, Dr. Phil, or whatever it is on TV that people listen to these days, instead of seeking him first. If we would just go to him, he might show, you know, there's no problem, you're not sick, the babies will be okay, but... There are two nations in your belly. And before we have our babies, we pray the whole time about God, you know, obviously to bless them that they be healthy and that the pregnancy be okay. But man, what, what's your name? What's your name for them? We might name them what God would have us name them. So we don't name them Midian or Ishbak or something. Oh, yes, Lord. Okay. <laughs> Midian Ishbak. That's the name. Just kidding. Uh, but it says that uh, they were born. Actually, the Lord responds there and says, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So this simple prayer or this problem going on in her pregnancy gives her an insight into the spiritual future of really the rest of time. But it says, indeed, there were twins. Indeed, there were twins. They didn't know how many were in there until uh, she heard from the Lord. And I'm not sure everyone really believed her. But then they came out and they go, whoa, there's twins. You know, again, they had no way of knowing that there was two other than what the Lord told them. And I remember uh, uh, my former creative director in New Jersey, uh, he's not that much older than me, uh, but they didn't really have ultrasound as good as I guess they did when I was born. And so, uh, and this was also the days when the dad had to sit outside the waiting room. And apparently uh, his mom uh, gives birth. The doctor comes out and goes to the dad and goes like this. 
And the dad goes, yeah, thinking, you know, I guess all their time thinking victory, like World War II, you know, victory. The doctor goes, no, two. There's two babies. So he had an identical twin brother. Um, I don't remember which one was born first. But I can't imagine, you know, <laughs> when Mia's born, doctor goes one and two. <laughs> you know, with your first kid, there's a, there's a big learning curve. And I can't imagine two on that learning curve. It would be a learning uh, roller coaster. Um, but, you know, we like the surprise. If it's a boy or a girl. But I don't know. <laughs> I'd kind of want to know if there was at least two in there. Um, you know, is there one hiding back there or not? And this is interesting. The commentary mentions this Jewish legend. Uh, again, it's just legend. It's you know not really real, but it's interesting. They say Jacob and Esau tried to kill each other in the womb. You know, these two babies are kind of like at each other's throats already. Um, you know, the, that's the verse I meant to look up for. It says, you know, a brother is born for adversity, right? But also, every time Rebecca went uh, near an idol's altar, Esau would get excited in the womb, and when she would go near a place where the Lord was worshipped, Jacob would get excited. You know, again, we don't know the validity of the stuff. You know, how legend goes. Um, but when Ashley was pregnant with our first, Mia, Ashley was on the worship team at church, and uh, Mia would move around, but then when worship come on, would come on, Mia would get all calm. And then the song would stop, right? And we'd say this, right? And Mia would begin to kick, and, hey, where's the music? Put the music back on. And Mia loves to sing. She's always singing a song. She's very, you know, we'd love to have to get an instrument soon, but um, she's always making up her own music. We already see that even in the womb. You know, there's these threads of her personality in there. But these kids were fighting all the time. And the first to come out was Esau. And we know that it means hairy, that he was red and hairy all over. Uh, later on, we see, uh, you know, that uh, Jacob, to imitate Esau to his dad, who's going blind, puts like goat skin on his arms. Um, so he was very hairy. And it says all over. And I don't know if this is what he had, but there's this thing called hypertrichosis. Basically, it's an abnormal amount of hair growth over the whole body. It can be from birth or getting on later. Um, I remember seeing a show about it a long time ago. It was kind of like, I don't know, one of those shows where they're trying to bring light to it, but you can't really tell. They're probably trying to go for the whole like freak show to get ratings. But basically, there's, I think there's about 50 people with it now um, who have hair over their entire bodies, like actual hair on their whole bodies. You know, you might think of like a werewolf or something of that nature. So I don't know if it, this was him, but there are conditions that exist like that. And second was Jacob, and he was grabbing Esau's heel. So even in birth, you know, <laughs> they're just grabbing for each other and going after each other. And so they name him heel holder or supplanter. And it's interesting that supplanter is one who wrongfully or legally seizes and holds the place of another, uh, basically speaking of a governmental overthrow. And we'll read later uh, how that comes to pass in our lives. But I think that's interesting because if we look back at all of Genesis and what we've gone through, we see that God made the world and he made it for us to be rulers over it. And I don't know if it was the first day or the first week or what, but we handed it over to Satan when we obeyed him rather than God. And so Satan became the ruler of the world uh, and our flesh in service to that. Uh, but that God would send a promised one through this line that would end up supplanting the false government of flesh and sin with a government of righteousness and by the spirit. And so we see Jacob comes out and he's supplanting that even though he was firstborn, he would have the rights of the first. Even though he wasn't firstborn, he would have the rights of the firstborn. And, uh, you know, I felt like God let us name our son Jacob David and didn't know why. Uh, Jacob being supplanter, deceiver, or heel catcher, and David meaning beloved. And he really is my beloved little boy. You know, when he was first born, he was basically colicky. He was like crying all the time. Oh, yeah, this, this boy <laughs> this boy is a self-willed little guy. He is. He's, 
he's a wild man and I love it. Um, but I also see that God has given him this little like sweet, sensitive heart, even though he's like got more energy than I think 30 kids. He's all over. But sincerely, uh, he and I think also a picture in his life is is God gets a hold of his life. That he's going to go from someone who's very self-willed to someone who uh, is beloved of the Lord. I know God loves him. But Isaac was 60. You know, I can't imagine having twin boys being 60 years old. I can't even imagine being 60 years old. I don't having two wild ones running around all the time. Um, uh, you know, my son is one energetic and wonderful little boy, and I'm in my late 30s, and I want more energy to run around with him. But I couldn't imagine being 60 with having two of them. But this is, this is God's plan for their life. Let's go on to verse 27. It says, So the boys grew... And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a, a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is my birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and arose and went on his way. And Esau, I'm sorry, thus Esau despised his birthright. It says that Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter and outdoorsman. He was a man who liked to hunt. A man who was all about being outside all the time and doing things outside. And Jacob was more of a homebody. He wanted to be at home. He liked to do things around the house. Obviously, he liked making stew and his brother liked his stew. So he was a good cook. You know, one's not better than the other, but these kids are polar opposites. We've got one. He's the rough and tough jock. Maybe he'd be on the football team. He's the brawn. It's Esau. Then we've got the intellectual straight-A student, the chef, the brain. Jacob. And it's interesting how two completely different kids can be identical twins, or even if they're not identical, you know, they're fraternal or whatever, um, that from very similar DNA, we get two totally different personalities. And I think it's even more of a, of a show that everyone is individual. Even if you had the same exact DNA as someone else, God has made you an individual person. And you don't have to be exactly like your brother or sister, and your parents are never going to be able to make you. And that's the temptation as we have more kids. You know, we had one kid, we had Mia, she was a certain personality, and then we had Jacob, a boy, a different personality, and then we were having a third, and we thought that the third would fit somewhere into column A or column B, but we're finding out that it's column C, <laughs> you know, you know, <laughs> with all the kids in your family, and then there's going to be column D. You know, was, uh, someone I used to listen to when he was asked, uh, how many kids do you have? And he said, I have three, one of each, you know, instead of having like saying two boys and one girl. I, I thought it was funny. All right, I appreciate it. But one of each. So I say that. We have one of each because they're each so different. They all have similar qualities, but they're all definitely individuals. You know, some try to use this word mild and pass off Jacob as being effeminate or somehow, you know, not masculine uh, for the term mild. But apparently the term uh, in its day was more about being wholeness, wholeness or well-rounded. Uh, you know, Esau was very much one thing and one thing only, but Jacob had a little more uh, depth to him. And if you're one or the other, there's not really a problem with it, but um, as we'll see, uh, Esau uh, tend to be a little too single-minded on his flesh. You know, I, I grew up in, you know, a suburban area. 
we didn't have cows, we didn't have chickens. Um, you know, my dad was a car salesman. My mom worked at a car dealership, not the same dealership, but later she worked at a publishing company. Um, I didn't learn how to work on cars as a kid. We didn't have firearms around the house as a kid. Um, you know, I played sports and things, but it wasn't, wasn't, we didn't live in the middle of the country. But today, and for the past 10, 15 years or so, I've learned how to work on cars. I've learned, you know, I, my daughter wants to get me tools, so I'm always doing something. Um, I'm finding that I'm becoming more well-rounded in these things because it's better. It's better to be able to be more self-sufficient and not have to pay someone anytime you want something done. I'm always trying to encourage people like, hey, you know, you can just look up how to do that. You don't, you know, make sure you figure, you know, try and figure it out if you can. Um, you know, you save a lot of money, you won't get ripped off. Um, you know, my, my mom and her uh, husband bought a house recently and they're having all these sorts of problems and I wish I could be there to help them out. You know, I'm certainly no plumber, but I could certainly help them do a couple things and you know, some guy just tried to rip them off for all this money. Thankfully, they were smarter than that. Um, but I have this friend, uh, Phil, back in New York. He does a youth group at another church. And he would always make fun of my hands because they're so soft because I do computer work all day. He would always rip on it. He's like, your hands, man. <laughs> they're gross. <laughs> like, I can't do anything about it. <laughs> I remember getting fingerprinted for my uh, carry permit in New York. And the sheriff was kind of like having trouble getting my fingerprints. And he said it's because, he's like, you work in an office, don't you? Goes, yeah. He goes, you touch paper all day, right? And I said, yeah. He says, because apparently the, the chemicals that they use to make paper can wear out your fingerprints. And he says that criminals would use, not, they wouldn't sit there and get like a ream of paper and rub their hands on it, but they would get the chemicals for paper making to try and bleach out their uh, fingerprints. So there's a tip if you're ever going to rob a bank one day. Uh, but we see that Isaac and Rebecca had favorites. And that's obviously never a good idea as a parent. You know, it's fleshly. You know, Mia's like me in some ways to want to favor her in them, those ways, especially if Jacob's acting up, to want to, like, favor them. But it, it's so fleshly to go that route. You know, especially, you know, I look at my son Jacob, and he doesn't look like me. He, when he came out, I almost said Bob, Ashley's dad's name or her brother's name, because he looked very that side of the family. But it would be foolish of me to, like, not treat him the same because he looks different than me. As I'm finding out, he's a lot like me. Um, on the inside and, and even if he wasn't even if he was not like me at all he's still my boy and that's fantastic and I get to have a boy and raise him um, but you know it's always going to hurt all of your children you know we joke with our mom about who's the favorite but I think we all I won't mention it but I think we all know who the favorite is and I think we all might think each other is the favorite at one time or another but you know it's always going to hurt I mean if, if there was sincerely a favorite you know in a really bad way where one is abused and one is favored that's going to hurt to think that your parents love someone, you know, love your brother or sister more than you, um, especially if it's just because one is more gifted in another thing than you because you can't help that. It's like one thing if you're just disobedient on your own accord, but if it's, you're not musical and they don't like you because you're not musical, well, that's, that's got to hurt. You know, again, our kids are unique and different, and they each have like a different spot in my heart. Right, Alicia? Yeah, and I try and love them equally. It doesn't mean I'm always going to do the same exact things with them all the time. But I try and love them the same. I try and be fair and discipline them the same. But again, each relationship is going to be different because it's a different person. I can't have the same relationship with my thirdborn as I can with my firstborn just because they're different. But Jacob ended up hanging out with his mom. You know, he was a real mama's boy around the house. Uh, but Isaac loved the meat that Esau would bring home. You know, venison, jerky, steak, that... Esau brought home, Isaac would just eat it up, and he loved his son for that. And 
uh, we'll see that there's some issue with that. You know, that perhaps Esau begins to, to think of his, what he has physically is more important than what he has spiritually uh, because of his dad's influence on him. Uh, but he comes home, he's went out hunting. It doesn't say that he caught anything. It doesn't say that he didn't, but he says that he's tired and weary. And you can probably say what it's like coming home after a week-long uh, hunting excursion. Um, you know, and especially if you came back empty-handed, you'd be very tired. Um, uh, probably too tired, even if you had something, to uh, cook it, to skin it, to deal with it. Um, I tend to always be too weary to prepare anything, even if it's a lazy Saturday, because Ash makes it, and it tastes so much better when she cooks it. My, my cooking skills are limited to like a bowl of cereal and like the Foreman grill. You know, she can actually make a lot more stuff. But he comes home, and he wants red stew. I think that's interesting because his name means red, right? Um, and we'll see that uh, come to play later in Scripture, that the stew Edom is red, and his descendants, and they, they have uh, dealings later with them. But right away, Jacob, being the little supplanter that he is, he asks for his birthright. You know, you know, the brother-sibling rivalry, you know, you mess around, no, you can't have any of my stew, or, you know, let me play Nintendo first tonight and I'll give you some. But he doesn't just start with something little. He goes right to the top. He goes uh, for the birthright. And he's been going for it his entire life. That heel catching in the womb is still going on right now. He sees an opportunity. My brother's hungry. Let me go for the birthright. How many, uh, you have to wonder how many times over their lives they say, Esau, give me your birthright. Esau, I'll trade you for your birthright. Esau, I'll give you my bike. Give me your birthright. How many times did it happen before this time? I don't know. Um, but he was thinking about it. It was on his mind all the time. You know, uh, maybe Esau was tougher in the womb, and that's why he came out first. I don't know. But basically, Esau says, I'm so hungry, I could eat a birthright. I'm so hungry, I could have a horse. Mom, I'm starving. You're not starving, trust me, but you feel like it, right? I'm starving. Where's my dinner? He says, I'm about to die. Who cares about the silly ritual that dad has? Who cares about the tradition of our dad? Who cares what he's going to give? He's, you know, maybe he's thinking he's still going to give it to me anyway. What I say doesn't matter. It's who I am. It's that I came out first. It's not what I do. It's not what I believe. It's just because I am. And how many people believe that? That it's just, they are just who they are. They can't do anything about it, and it's not going to affect them one way or another how they act. You know, I think of perhaps a spoiled kid who they're spoiled and they'll do whatever they want, and it doesn't matter. You know, my, you know who my dad is? But what could have been passed off as a joke or even just a sly attempt at getting it, you know, maybe he was saying it underhanded, maybe he didn't really think his brother would give it to him, but it reveals something much deeper. And this deal is something that Esau would later regret. regret. I believe that shows us that the flesh is always willing to pay a high price or even a higher price to fulfill a small need now or a small desire now. Buy now, pay later, 0% interest for six months. Balloon payments, your payments for the first 10 years will be $10, but the last one, it'd be gigantic. All to get your flesh. But Jacob tricked him. And yes, he shouldn't have, he shouldn't have done that. That was, you know... But even more so, Esau willingly gave it up. I don't think Jacob could have beat Esau up. You see Jacob being scared of Esau later. But he gave it up for just a simple bowl of stew. And I think that shows us that he wasn't as smart or tough as he thought he was. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. You know, there's a lot of people who think they're very smart, very tough in life, and yet they don't believe in God because they're smart or because they're strong. And the Bible says you're foolish because of it. But verse 34 says, Jacob gave Esau bread and a stew of lentils, and he ate and drank and arose and went his way, and Esau despised his birthright. That this whole act was showing that Esau despised it. Not that he didn't necessarily care about it or it wasn't a big deal to him, but he despised it. He hated it. He, he almost didn't care at all. I don't need what my dad gave me. I'm going to do my own life and do my own thing. My dad can't give me anything. And he does this all for bread and a stew of lentils. He goes to the soup shop and gets just a little stew and a little bread and that's it. It's just vegetables and spices. You know, it's kind of this winter, you know, you eat a lentil stew. It's kind of this wintry stew that maybe you didn't have much meat left and all you had was vegetables back in the day and you'd make this stew, put some spices in it. And yeah, it tasted good apparently. But what a light meal. He scarfed it down, eats the bread, birthright is gone. And he leaves. It wasn't even a feast. It wasn't like, I'll make you a steak. You can have dessert, four courses, and we'll eat all day. Just a quick little bowl of soup. I think it's interesting. When I looked up lentil stew, the first thing that came up was a vegan recipe. And he got this mighty hunter trading his entire birthright for a vegan meal. You know, for some tofu. Like, there's something wrong there. It's fine if you like tofu, but it's just the juxtaposition there is a little weird. You know, it's a side dish, like I said, a winter meal for when food was scarce and nothing that you'd eat during times of plenty. And I'm reading this note from the commentaries. We're about to close here. It says, The birthright involved both material and a spiritual dynamic. The son of the birthright received a double portion of the inheritance, and he also became the head of the family and the spiritual leader upon the passing of the father. And I think that's what Esau was least interested in, was being a spiritual leader. And as men, that's the thing we're supposed to be most interested in. Not to seek the position and supplant and grab to get it, but to do it and to live it. In the case of this family, the birthright determined who would inherit the covenant God had made with Abraham. See, Esau didn't care about that. The covenant of the land, the nation, and the Messiah. We'll see later that he's like, Dad, what did you, why did you give it? That was mine. He doesn't care about it. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't put enough value on it. And that's how Esau despised his birthright. He considered it to be vile. This thing that had immeasurable worth to be absolutely worthless. Just like this little bowl of lentils and spices and bread was three cents worth of food. It wasn't, wasn't this expensive meal. And I believe that what we trade for our sin shows how much, we value, so how much value we put on it. You know, if we've got a, a marriage and we trade it for a cheap night somewhere, it shows how much we valued our marriage. Um, if we've got a used junky car and we put it on Craigslist for $10,000, well, no one's going to buy it because we put too much value on it. But if we have a million-dollar home, you know, it's interesting how it's, some of the homes out here are so expensive. Um, but we put it on the market for very little, it's going to sell right away and without an inspection because obviously we put too little value on it. And I think more than anything, the enemy wants us to sell our birthright. That we are made in God's image. That if we get rid of all that in life, that we'll be giving it up. You're right, Alicia? For something cheaper. That our blessings, the inheritance that God has for us, even our family has for us. You see the two sons, the prodigal son, they both want the, one wants his inheritance early, he goes out and he wastes it. Um, 
know how quickly we could do that, but our families, our dignities, our witness, sometimes even just for a small moment of pleasure, we'll throw it all away. We were like Esau, right in the moment. I'm so hungry, let me trade my eternity for a tiny moment. You know, the price and the pain will cost you far more to you and those around you than whatever you're trading it for. And I can say that there's things that, that I've done in life that, yeah, I'm forgiven for, and, and even in the sense that God has restored things in my life, but I'm still paying for. I'm still grieved over. I'm still, in a sense, in a worldly sense, guilty of. Thankfully, I've been forgiven of it. And I think about the things that I've done before I knew the Lord, the awful things, and how my wife has to know that I used to do those things, and my kids will have to grow up and know that my dad was involved in those things, but thankfully they've been redeemed and, got, and it'll be a witness to them. But man, I think about how much God has given me now and how quickly I could trade it all for nothing. And I pray that I would never trade these little kids for anything because you're worth it, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But sincerely, uh, as we close, know that God has birthright for you that whether you have a family inheritance or not, whether you have a giant bank account or not, whether you know, your relationship is young or it's old, that it has value and that you know, the world and the enemy in your flesh is, is always working to try and get us to trade things of great value for things of little worth. And the Lord would have us stay away from that and stay away from anyone that tries to trick you into that. So Lord, we pray that, uh, God, you would help us hang on to, the, to you, that Lord... Uh, the things you have for us, whether it's good or bad in life, we know that ultimately they're for good. But God, that you'd help us not trade our salvation or um, the blessings and ministry and in life you've given to us for anything less. And especially not our closest relationships, our marriages. I pray you protect our marriages, protect our homes and uh, uh, our families. And uh, but God, help us to uh, inherit all that you have for us. Um, ultimately, Lord, uh, your kingdom and eternity, that we wouldn't be living for this life, God, that, but like we would, uh, we would trade everything in this life that we might gain uh, others in the next one, Lord. Uh, we love you. Look forward to all you're going to do, and we pray just uh, you come soon. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.